studying on the promises of God and different, uh, different aspects, uh, different promises that he uh, makes to us. And I hope uh, in, the, in the season that our church is in that it will be, uh, that it will be just helpful for us um, and encouraging. And so if it works out well today to celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, and talk about uh, this promise of pardon. So you got your Bibles open to Isaiah 55. Let's just quickly ask for God's help. Father, as we study this morning and think about your pardon, I pray that our hearts would just be in tune, that distractions would be taken away from us, and that each one would give full attention to the Word of God this morning, and you would honor it in Jesus' name. Amen. Promise is only good, of course, as the one who is making the promise. God's Word can be trusted. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. I like this kind of a theme in this study on the promises of God. Has he said and will he not do it? <laughs> the answer to that is, has he said and will he not do it? Of course he will. Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? What God says, God what? Does, 100%. What God says, God does. 1 Samuel 15, 29 the glory of Israel will not lie. Titus 1-2, our greatest hope, our most important basis of faith is on the basis of will God give us what? Will God give us? What's the most important hope that you have? Will God give you salvation, eternal life? That's my most important hope. And Titus 1-2 says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. If you are banking on Jesus Christ for salvation, you will receive it because God cannot lie. He made that promise to you, and has he not spoken, and will he not do it? We're going to come back to that phrase a lot. But we're curious, we're wondering, we're concerned, we're frail people, we doubt. Hebrews 6.18, we're just saying that you are always good. I doubt myself, but we're sure of your love. Hebrews 6.18 says that God by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. He swears by his name and makes this oath to us. God doesn't have to do that, but he does that in an extra way. He swears by himself that he will fulfill. He doesn't need to. He does that for our benefit. That we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Every promise that God has made will be fulfilled for you. If you are doubting that, the problem is not with God, the problem is with you. Not that, not that we all don't face doubts and concerns and we waver on whether God will do what he says, but it's just the fact that you are not trusting in what God has said. God will always come through. God will always do what he says. And how are those promises fulfilled? How can God make all those sure promises? They all are fulfilled in Jesus 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all of His promises. To start this series on God's promises, let us understand this, that God can be trusted to keep His promises. The coming, the death, and resurrection of Jesus brings fulfillment to every one of them, so let us each confidently rest our hope in God and in all of these promises, knowing his word to be true, 
Promise number one, God's promise of pardon. So we're going to have about six of these. We start with perhaps the most important promise, that God promises to forgive us. Amen to that. (laughs) And that promise of forgiveness, I hope you were listening, finds its fulfillment where? In Jesus. Because all of God's promises find their fulfillment in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20, if you're taking notes, I should have done a sheet because this little series on the promises, I really want it to bolster your faith and encourage those of you who are struggling and difficult situations, which we all find ourselves in from time to time. 2 Corinthians 1.20 would be a great verse. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. Yes. He says yes to everything. He says, God, will you ever leave me? You know, will you all, let's put it in the positive. God, will you, ever, will you always be with me? The promise is yes. God, will you forgive me of my sin? The promise is yes. God, will you give me hope? Yes. God, will you give me eternal life? Yes. God, will you keep your word? Yes. Every answer is yes. And we read Isaiah 55, 1 to 9 already, and I hope you have your Bibles open there because this is going to be the passage for our study this morning. And one thing we want to put at the top or at the heading of all of this discussion about God is that God is unique. That's an overused and misunderstood word. Uh, there, there really is only one thing that is unique, and that is God. Because unique means one of a kind. We might use it, well, that, that, was, that, was, kind of a, a, that was a unique painting. Well, it's, it, it's not unique. I mean, it might stand out from others, but truly God alone is unique, which is why it is right for Him to ask us to worship Him alone, because He stands above and apart and outside of His creation. This is why He is completely and totally unique, Because everything else that is in existence is dependent upon this being, whereas he is not dependent on anything. He stands outside of his creation, which is why it is so foolish, Romans 9, for any that are in the creation to raise their fist or even ask God a question, say, why are you doing this in my life? No one has the right to do that to God. He stands completely separate and apart from us. And to even question God in a way that would, I'm not talking about like just just arguing or wrestling with God, but to question God's working and 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 to state that he is doing something wrong, Romans 9 talks about that. Who are you to question God? Who is the potter? Who is the clay that he should say to the potter, why did you make me like this? Right? No one is to question God. He is outside of his creation. And so it's God's uniqueness that I want to keep in our focus as we move through these nine verses, Isaiah 55, 1 to 9. So I want to use four headings to kind of drive our thinking. They're not great, but I I think in letters, and so that's how I do it. So here's our four-stage process, and this will help kind of walk you through and keep your mind engaged as we, again, we're, we're driving towards the goal of the Lord's Supper. Okay, so here's the four headings. First of all, we have all one word. We have the word come, verses 1 to 3. Then we have the word covenant, verses 3 to 5. Then we have a condition, verses 6 to 7. And then we have compassion, verses 7 to 9. And just to to summarize where we're going, all of this is regarding the uniqueness of God. First of all, come in verses 1 to 3, we see the uniqueness of God that he would even invite impoverished beggars and rebels to his side. Come. That's unique that God would even do that. The covenant, it's the uniqueness of God in securing mercy and love for his followers. The condition, 
It's the uniqueness of God in accepting sinful returners to Him. And then the compassion, this probably stands above all of the other uniqueness, the uniqueness of God that He would abundantly mercy, uh, excuse me, abundantly pardon in His mercy. So I trust that our hearts will be blessed by this as we talk about the promise of pardon. So that's what we're talking about, the promise of pardon. There's going to be one of two applications for us. There's going to be basically two applications. You can either receive this pardon, and many of you already have, but you can either receive the pardon of God by doing what the passage says, and I'm going to outline what that means. You can either receive the pardon, or if you've already done that, what letter R word should your response be today? Rejoice in the pardon. Those are the two applications for us today. You can either receive it, and if you have received it, boy, you should be rejoicing about it, right? The celebration of the Lord's Supper should be the climax of your worship experience today. When you take the bread and you drink the juice, you're going to say in your heart, Lord, thank you. I rejoice that Christ has provided that pardon that you promised. All of his promises are fulfilled in Jesus. So let's walk through it quickly, as quickly as we can, because I want to leave time for the Lord's Supper, and I know uh, we don't want to be here uh, over time. But number one, come. Verses one to three. Let's reread, because reading the scripture is the best thing I can do uh, in this pulpit. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently diligently to me, and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food, incline your ear, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. That kind of is the break. The covenant part will come next. Hear that your soul may live. There are no less than 10 invitations in these three verses. In verse 1, the word come is used four times. In verse 2, the word listen, eat, and delight are used as invitation words. And in verse 3, we have the word incline, come, and hear. Ten times. I mean, the thrust of verse 1 is clear, isn't it? Almost every other word is come. The invitation that is being made, uh, could the invitation that God is making be any more clear or forceful or repeated than it is? You think God is stuttering here. You think God is just forgetting that he already said to come, and he says it again. Come, 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 come. These are like cries of a street vendor. You walk through a marketplace, and the street vendors are crying out for you to come and see their wares. We saw a little bit of it as the man was walking through Israel uh, in our video this morning. These are urgent and impassioned pleas. These are, these are invitations that are meant to be uh, that are meant to come to bear on our souls, that we should be impelled to come. But nothing here is jumbled. This is not just the Lord kind of using the same word over again. In fact, every one of the word come in verse 1 kind of highlights a different aspect of the invitation. I want you to see that. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. We could make four uh, statements about the word come, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to combine them into three. The word come is used four times, but I'm going to combine them into three. They each highlight a different aspect in what God is offering. God in his invitation is offering something to us. Think about that. Think about the uniqueness of God. He is offering something. I mean, that alone causes us to worship and glorify him, that he would stoop and invite those of us who have from the womb, are born in sin, by nature rebels. The first highlight, uh, so we'll do an ABC here, at least that's the way I have it. Come, 
I'm going to combine come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Let's combine those two uh, comes. What is this highlighting? First of all, it's highlighting that the invitation is open to everybody. And it's the invitation that is offering to anyone who finds themselves thirsty. Anybody who thirsts? Anybody who is in need? All who are thirsty may come. Now, doesn't it imply not only that everyone may come, but that everyone is thirsty, right? All who are thirsty. Well, who of us is thirsty? I mean, he's using that word in in a symbolic way, but everyone should realize, yeah, I'm thirsty. Not thirsty necessarily for water, but I'm thirsty for satisfaction. Think about John chapter 4, verse 14. We talk about every promise fulfilled in Jesus. Come to the waters. Come to the waters. Remember what happened in John chapter 4? What is the thrust of John chapter 4, you Bible scholars? What is John chapter 4? It's Jesus' invitation to the Samaritan woman, woman at the well. John chapter 4. Sir, uh, or he says, everyone who comes to this well will have to come again, will thirst again. But he who drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. Do you think there's an allusion to Isaiah 55? One in that, the living water, come to the waters which satisfy. All who are thirsty will, provide, will be provided adequately for. So what we learn here is there, that there is a need and that there is a supply. There is a satisfaction If you come, if you're thirsty, if you're desirous of some sort of satisfaction, then come to the waters. The second come. If you don't have any money, come. So the highlight here is that those who are coming are in poverty. But it's really interesting because it says, if you have no money, come and buy. What am I supposed to buy it with? If this is without price, end of verse 1, without money and without price, The key thought here is that a purchase has been already made, but you're not the one providing the payment for it. You see that? The purchase, you're you're coming to receive a transaction that has already been paid for, and now you get the product as as a result of that transaction. It's, it's, I'm not sure if we could adequately allegorize it in some sort of human uh, terms, like, like me going to the store today to Meyer to pick up an Xbox and to, and to buy it. I don't, I don't have any money in my wallet. I just want to come in and have an Xbox, and the person just gives it to me, says it's paid for. Right? They're not just going to give it to you free, but someone else has paid for it. In coming to God for the satisfaction of the water, we understand that a transaction has been paid. Christ is all over Isaiah 55. Who do you think made the purchase? Who do you think bought the wine, the milk, the water? Again, all symbolic of the salvation that is offered. It has been paid for. So here's the the highlight here. The water, which represents salvation, of course, and satisfaction is free to you, but there was a price paid for it. See where we're moving here, right? You all and I have received salvation, have received that satisfaction, that spiritual thirst that we had, which is satisfied only in Christ, has already been made. We bring our poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? Third, the third come. Come, buy wine and milk. Now we're, now we're getting wine and milk. And even if you look down to verse number two, we can combine this other invitation with delight yourself in rich food. It is not just water that is offered. Wine, milk, and food are offered. What does this highlight on? It focuses on the richness 
the depth of the offer, the delight that is going to come. Twice in my reading, in two different uh, uh, corresponding Isaiah 55 studies, uh, was mentioned this, so maybe one guy got it from the other. God is not God is not making an invitation to some soup kitchen where you're getting a cup of broth that might, you might need more. God is basically offering a feast. Delight yourself in rich food. And of course, the offer is not for water. The offer is not for wine or milk or food. The offer is for all the blessings that come to us in God. It's that spiritual hole is filled. That spiritual thirst is quenched. The spiritual hunger is satisfied. The spiritual need is met in Christ. And He is the one offering it. Come. Come. Now those of you who have come, have you found that to be true? Of course you have. Of course you have. That's why you're here this morning. And those of you who haven't come, the invitation is there. Well, not for me. What does the passage say? Everyone. Everyone. The, the, passage, the, the passage clearly states that anybody can come. What the feast is symbolic of is of the love and mercy of forgiveness, just like the thirst is symbolic of the need. Remember in Ecclesiastes, uh, God has set eternity in our hearts. In other words, humans are thirsty and desperate for satisfaction. But the problem is, verse number two, they look for that in all the wrong places, right? Why do you spend your money on that which isn't bread? You know, people are, people are looking for spiritual junk food. Why do, you, why do you find for it in religion? Why do you find for it in substance? Why do you find for it in relationships? See, it, you labor for that which does not satisfy. So here's the options. Labor is connected to someone who comes and buys without price. So I can either come and receive for free, paid for by Christ, the forgiveness and contentment that comes from knowing God through Jesus, or I can work and energize and labor for that which is never going to satisfy. I got, I got two um, invitations this week to attend different churches, um, what they think I'm going to do, but the, to, to attend these churches. One was for the installation of some, uh, I would say, an apostate church. Come and come and come to this church, and we're going to install this pastor and make sure you wear red because that's the whatever. And another, not so much for me personally, but an invitation to go and, and uh, uh, learn about the environment at, at church and, and uh, learn about recycling. Can you imagine? Imagine if instead of the, I mean, think about this. There are churches today that instead of lifting up Christ are telling us to recycle. Think about that. I mean, you talk about laboring on that which doesn't satisfy. Now, I recycle. We got three little laundry baskets out in the, you know, put the pop bottles in, put the glass in, take them up to the recycling bin. That's a good thing to do. But if I was, if I was betting on recycling to satisfy me, boy, and, and how sad, I mean, there's, there's plenty of churches that are offering the same type of thing, same type of message we're offering, I'm not saying that, but how sad that there are people that are drawn to this. Oh, honey, you want to go to the recycling convention? Boy, that's really going to help us. I mean, it's nonsense. Laboring on that which does not satisfy, that's just one example. I'm going to achieve in my career, I'm going to achieve academically, I'm going to achieve in relationships, and somehow all those things will satisfy me. How many times have we heard conversion stories of people like that who lived their life for 5, 10, 20, 30 years, and, and then said, and all of it was meaningless to me until I found Christ, and Christ alone satisfied me, right? Christ alone satisfies. 
the solution for the thirsty beggar is to, verse number two, listen persistently to God. Stop seeking for that satisfaction in other places. Hearken to God, and when you do, you will, end of verse two, delight yourself. There are basically two pursuits, two courses of actions, and two outcomes. We can pursue Christ and be satisfied, or we can pursue things and be unsatisfied. Not only that, be punished for all of eternity. Note the conclusion. I, I want to point this out because this, this, this passed by me until I read it, I think, in Matthew Henry, uh, his book. But, so I should have noticed it. Um, look at verse number one again. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the what? Say it. Everybody say it. Come to the waters. And then I look down at verse three. Incline your ear and come to, come to me. See what's been replaced? Waters has been replaced with me. See how the Bible interprets itself? When you're coming to the waters, what are you coming to? You're coming to God. You're coming to Christ. He replaces the waters with me. Say, he doesn't say come to the waters anymore. He says come to me and hear so that your soul might live. I, I love that conclusion. I mean, and, and Christ, again, is the fulfillment. He is the living water, John 4. He is the bread of life, John 6. This is the foreshadowing of our Messiah. Second thought is the thought of covenant. So that's the invitation. Come. Boy, and I urge you to come. Man, I urge you to come. This is such a sacred moment for us today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and I just urge you to come to Christ. Accept that invitation. Let's do the second thing, covenant. Right in the middle of verse 3, he shifts. After he makes this invitation, he says what he will do if you do come. He will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made a witness. I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples, and you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. This is, this is maybe the most difficult part of the, of the study. How can we be confident in that invitation? Right, boy, it, you know, like what they, what they always say, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. This sounds too good to be true. You mean I can come and have full and complete satisfaction for free? Yes, you can, through Christ. How can I be confident of this? Because God has committed to it through covenant. That's what it says. God has promised through covenant to do it. And without getting into too deep of a discussion, a covenant is this. A covenant indicates that God is bringing us into the privileges that that covenant signifies. God is saying, if you will do this, I will make a covenant with you, and he describes it as the covenant with that a steadfast and sure love for David. Now, God throughout scriptures, we can't get too deep into it, has made different covenants along the way, starting with Abraham. He made the Abrahamic covenant where he said, I will bless you. God's just going to do this unconditional covenant. I'm going to bless you because in you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. In your seed, ultimately the Messiah is going to come from the line of Abraham. Note Matthew in the genealogy of Christ, and it's true came from the line of Abraham, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In, in a sense, because of Abraham's seed, those of us who are Christians, are blessed. And then he comes to David in 2 Samuel 7 when the people resisted God as their king and wanted a king, and they elected Saul. God, God gave them Saul, and then he failed, 
and David became king in his place, and God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7 and basically stated that human failure will never end your reign, David. There will always be a king on the throne of Israel that comes from your line. Doesn't matter what you do. And he did some dastardly things, right? But God's covenant is described here as steadfast, sure love. This is, as Derek has taught us, his hesed love, his loyal love. 2 Samuel 7, of course, finds its fulfillment, as all of God's promises do, in Jesus Christ, because in Luke, in our study in Luke, we learn this, way back in chapter 1, verse 32, when, when Jesus' birth was being announced or being pro, uh, prophesied, it is said about Jesus that this would happen. The Lord God will give to him, that is Jesus, the throne of his father, David. This promise seemed to go unfulfilled when Christ died. But the resurrection of Jesus proved the veracity of God's covenant. And what God is saying is, I will then invite you into this covenant if you come, and you will share in the steadfast, sure love. Turn to Acts chapter 13. We rarely do this, but I want to look at one other passage because this sheds light on it. In fact, it's even quoted in this passage. Acts 13. And Paul helps us to understand the impact of this covenant. Acts 13. Let's read, uh, let's see how much we want to read. It, it's part of Paul's preaching. Uh, let, let's, let's uh, boy, it's so good. So again, I'm not going to apologize for reading because that's the best thing to do. Look back in verse 16. We're going to read quite a bit. I'm going to go a little fast and pick up, pick up the, the thrust of what Paul is saying. Paul stood up. I like this. Brothers, if there's any encouragement, say it. So Paul's got something to encourage the brothers with. Uh, if you fear God, listen. Verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. For about 40 years, he put up with them, that's good, in the wilderness. After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Verse 21, they asked for a king, just to explain that, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. When he removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. People must be thinking, why is this, yeah, this is so important, this is our history, but what does it mean to do, what does it have to do with Jesus? Paul will state it in verse 23. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Next three words, say it. Thank you, Sharon. Everybody say it. As he promised. Are you following along? Follow along. As he promised. I want you to see that. As he promised. Series on the promises. Jesus is the promise, the fulfillment of it. Before his coming, John proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not him. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterance of the promises, which are prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Amen to that. And for many days he appeared to them who had come up with him from Galilee, Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. 
and we bring you the good news that what God what? Promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. The promise is fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way. And here is the quote from Isaiah 55, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. It is the resurrection of Christ that fulfills the promise of the covenant back in Isaiah 55. This sure love for David that God is covenanting with will eventually draw people to Israel and to specifically the Messiah. Verse number 4 back in Isaiah 55 tells us that he made David to be a witness to the people, a leader, commander for the peoples, and then I think he switches and starts talking about the Messiah. You, Messiah, will call a nation you do not know. Whenever we see nation in the Bible, it's talking about Gentile nations. You will call all these people who are not part of the covenant of Israel, but now can enter into that covenant because of Christ, and they will all be drawn to Israel, specifically to Christ. All these Gentile nations will be drawn. He even predicted that. He will be a light to the Gentiles. And a nation that did not know you, that's us, will run to you because God has been glorified, specifically in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts 13, 34 makes that clear. The magnetism of Christ is attracting the whole world to himself. And this is not just some mere, well, I might do this. This is God covenanting with us to fulfill his promises in Christ. There is, number three, a condition. Verse 6 and 7 of Isaiah 55. How do we enter then into the enjoyment of this covenant? How do we enter into the sure and steadfast love? It is not for everybody. There is a condition, and it's given with a bunch of imperatives in verse 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he might have compassion on him. The condition is this. We must seek the Lord as our treasure. We must call upon him as our dependence. And the indication is that this may run out. Right? What is the word in those verses that indicates that there may be a time when you can't do this anymore? The word is while. Seek the Lord while he may be found. There's the implication that there's going to be a time when he can't be found. Call upon him while he is near. Implication that their time will run out eventually, either through death or through whatever other means. The clear statement is urgency. And what, again, the uniqueness of God is seen that a being like this would offer anybody any opportunity at all. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. The clear connection from verse 7 to verse 6 is that the very height of wickedness and the very definition of unrighteousness is the person that does not seek the Lord, that does not call upon him. That is the essence of wickedness. Seeking something else as your highest treasure and pleasure. Calling on something else as your dependence and salvation and trust. That is wickedness. So if a person is not seeking the Lord, not calling upon Him, forsake that wickedness. Forsake it and return to the Lord. This is, of course, repentance. Return to Him. This alone is your hope. Start seeking Him. Start calling upon Him. Stop pursuing other things. And number four, what does God offer? Compassion. When you do that, 
He will abundantly pardon. If we return to the Lord, call on Him, seek Him, God will grant us a pardon. It always, uh, I wasn't going to say this, but it always intrigues me whenever they execute people in our country. I, I, I don't know, I just I like to read what their last meal is and what those type of things. And there's, they always talk about how they're going to be killed and what's going to be in the room because sometimes, it, it's just, I don't know why they, they talk about this. They're always that phone in the room. They're always that phone in the room, you know. Maybe the governor will make a last-minute pardon, last-minute pardon, last-minute call to pardon that person. Imagine being that person. I mean, can you imagine that being in that position? Strapped to the gurney, needle inches away, coming up on midnight, tick, 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 tick. I mean, wouldn't you be staring at that phone? Wouldn't you be staring at that phone? I mean, just praying for a phone to ring. And then the phone rings, and it's the governor. And you're in the, imagine this, you're in the gurney. Don't answer that. Can you imagine? In a sense, that's what so many people do with the invitation of God. He's offering pardon. And, and they, in a sense, they don't want it because they don't want it the way God suggests it. Almost like if verse 6 read, do your best, read the latest self-help books, try real hard, and I'll forgive you. If it, it's almost like if he said that, people would be mad at that. It doesn't matter what God would say. People are going to reject what God says because they want to be autonomous. They want to be a law to themselves. And think about the the simplicity of this, I won't say that it's easy, but the simplicity of this, if you would just depend on me and seek me and return to me, and the heart of wickedness is a self-dependence or it's a other dependence on something other than God for salvation, that is, the, that is the very core of wickedness. If you would just do that, I will not just pardon, I will abundantly pardon. You will be richly forgiven. Not only will you be forgiven, you'll also be feasting, back to verses 1 to 3, on wine and milk and Food, you'll have a, such a great satisfaction. This compassion is what God offers, this abundant pardon through Christ. And then we look at verse 8, and we see right away in verse number 1, as we studied this summer, the word for, which is a word of reason. It's a word of result or a, a word of explaining what was just said. And verse 8 and 9 may be uh, some of the most misapplied, misunderstood, taken out of context verses that we have in the Bible. And we just kind of throw this around tritely, right, when something happens that... Uh, that we don't, uh, you know, you know some, some random thing happens to us. We get in a car, crack, car crash and we don't appreciate it. We say, well, uh, God's ways are not our ways. And, we, and people just kind of throw that out as some platitude. But here in the context, you know what it's explaining? It's explaining the uniqueness of God in being willing to abundantly pardon us. Think about this. If we read it in the context, it says, God will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Basically, what he's saying is the uniqueness of God in doing this because we are not beings that do that. Even other gods, small g, that do not exist are never glorified for their con uh, uh, condescension in forgiving their worshipers. Those gods are mean and cruel, right? And demanding. This God... Our God, the true God, is reaching down with compassion, and the reason he does that is because he's completely unique and different from every other being. My ways are not your ways. I'm a forgiving God. I'm a pardoning God. You see the context now? Be careful to understand that in the context, it's explaining why God will abundantly pardon is because he is not like us. Let somebody do you wrong. See how quickly you forgive. 
how you pardon. Typically what we say is, I can forgive, but I can't forget. Well, because someone said something mean about you. Again, we see the otherness of God. Turn with me one, two more times. Isaiah 57 should just be a page uh, further in our Bibles. Isaiah 57. I want to jump off on this theme of God's uniqueness and His highness. Your ways are higher than our ways. Look at Isaiah 50, 57, 17. 57, or excuse me, 57, 15. 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high. Here he is again, high and exalted and lifted up. He inhabits eternity. His name is holy. I mean, look at the, look at the, the majestic description of God. He is, he is high. He is holy. He is lifted up. He dwells in a high and holy place. And he, get this, and also with, I'd circle that word, who is high and lifted up and holy and wants to live with anybody? <laughs> he, he is with those who are contrite and lowly in spirit. He revives the spirit. This holiness and highness is manifested in his I mean, the word with just explodes to me off the page. He gives what we need back in Isaiah 55, water. And He does what we can't here in 57, 15. He revives us. He gives life, joy, delight. All of this is a result of His abundant pardon. God's height to willingly stoop and pardon us doesn't minimize His glory. It maximizes it. That He is willing to bend and, and live with those who are contrite and repentant and return to Him and seek Him and call upon Him. He is exalted further that He would do that. This is all God. This is what God has done. One more passage, Isaiah 30, 15. Isaiah 30, verse 15. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse number 15. One final exhortation for us, okay? Thus says the Lord God, 3015, thus says the Lord God, again, very same description, the Holy One of Israel, in returning, very similar to Isaiah 55, in returning and rest you'll be saved, in quietness and trust shall be your strength. Those of us who have given our confidence and our rest in God, come on to me, all you are labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. We find God to be our strength, our deliverer, our salvation, sadly, but you were unwilling. Because here's what you said, verse 16. You said, no, we want to trust in horses. We will flee away on those horses, they say. You will flee away. And he said, we will ride on swift steeds. So your pursuers will be swift. See what happens when we pursue and trust other things and do not rest in God? Peril, tragedy. But when we rest and trust and return to this Holy One, we provide, He provides us with an abundant pardon. He becomes our strength. He becomes our salvation. All of that fulfilled for us in Christ. Turn in your songbook to page number 11. Leah is going to come help us as we move into our communion supper time. I hope that's an encouragement to you. The promise of pardon. I said at the beginning,